whilst there is no doubt that that period was a turning point for Northern Ireland, we're still struggling to deal with the legacy of our troubled past, those dark years that cast their shadow, not just over our past, but to a degree continue to cast their shadow over our future. And until we can find a way of dealing with those issues, I think um, the potential of that future is being held back. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. We kick off season five of Veterans in Politics podcast with leader of the DUP, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson MP. Sir Geoffrey is a veteran of the Ulster Defence Regiment, a regiment that gave so much during the height of Northern Ireland's troubles. Our host Johnny served there during the signing of the Good Friday Agreement that led to peace in Northern Ireland. They talk about Sir Geoffrey's thoughts on this two decades on, as well as his own personal loss with the murder of his cousins. A high-impact start to this new season. It's time for you to meet our guest. I am joined by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, a member of the Privy Council and a veteran from the Ulster Defence Regiment. Geoffrey, first of all, it's really great to meet you. How are you today? Johnny, I'm great, thank you. We're in the middle of uh, assembly elections in Northern Ireland, so I've been out canvassing all around uh, the province, uh, joining my candidates across um, Northern Ireland, so it's been a busy time. Yeah, I can imagine. And and by the time this episode lands, we would have known the result of that election, of course, so very exciting times in Northern Irish politics. Something I've been really obsessed with, really, from a young age, particularly my first tour of uh, West Belfast, but like you, um, you served and uh, you were in the Ulster Defence Regiment at quite a young age. Many of our listeners, though, won't be really aware of the history and the sacrifice and service of the UDR. Can you tell us a little bit, of back, bit about that background, the reasons why you joined your service and in doing so, a little bit about the story of the Ulster Defence Regiment? Well, Johnny, first of all, thank you for this opportunity to um, talk about my previous services or something I often have the opportunity to speak of um, in uh, public, but when I was 17 years old, uh, I applied to join the Ulster Defence Regiment. My father had served from its inception, and the UDR was formed way back in the dark days of the early 1970s in Northern Ireland when the troubles were really at their height, and it, it was established as uh, primarily and initially a part-time regiment, which was there to support the police and the army in Northern Ireland. Uh, it comprised um, local people, some of them who had previous military service, some of them like myself, very young, um, but wanting uh, to be involved in protecting our communities. At that time, the IRA, Irish Republican Army, a paramilitary terrorist organization was very active. 
Um, there were also loyalist paramilitary organizations active as well. Um, high levels of violence, um, bombings, shootings. A lot of people were dying. Um, and uh, so when I was 17, uh, I uh, wanted to take the steps to follow in my father, uh, his footsteps, and join the Ulster Defence Regiment. Um, and so I knew that you could join at 18, so I applied when I was 17. Um, and uh, at that time, we were really going through a very difficult period in Northern Ireland. In fact, um, it was the, the era of the hunger strikes when leading IRA prisoners were involved in a hunger strike and, and a protest in the Mays Prison, which is now in my constituency here in Lagan Valley in Northern Ireland. And at that time, things were very tense. There was a lot of violence. The IRA was intensifying its violence. So at the age of 18, I turned 18 um, in, uh, uh, in that year, um, 1980. Uh, and uh, uh, in February 1981, uh, I began my training to become a UDR recruit uh, at a place called Ballykindler. I joined the 3rd Battalion uh, of the Ulster Defence Regiment based in County Down, which is my native county. I grew up in the Mourns in Kilkeelan, County Down. And the local company there was B Company of the 3rd Battalion, the Ulster Defence Regiment. And so I was allocated to my local company. So I was actually serving with men and women at that time. Women were also recruited into the UDR. They were called Greenfinches. And they were the first women in the history of the British Army to be on active service. So right um, uh, uh, in the middle of our very troubled uh, period, we had female soldiers serving on the front line with the Ulster Defence Regiment in Northern Ireland. So these were men and women I knew. Some of them were school friends who joined the UDR around the same time as me, people I'd grown up with. Um, so there was a great sense of camaraderie. Um, we knew each other. Um, we were, you know, you would do your job by day. So at that time, um, I had begun um, uh, my studies and training as an electrical engineer in Belfast. I lived at Kilkeelan County Down, so that was about an hour and 15 minutes drive. So I would um, drive from my home to be in Belfast for 8 a.m. in the morning. I would go home, um, and at about 7 p.m., I would go on duty with the UDR, and I would do an eight-hour um, duty until about three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, go home and get a couple of hours sleep and then get back in my car and drive all the way back to Belfast again. So I'm not sure I could have done it if I hadn't been as young as I was, 18 years old. I was enthusiastic. I was committed. Um, I was hold, trying to hold down a full-time job, um, training as an, as an engineer, but at the same time serve my community and do maybe three duties a week, eight-hour duties, with the Ulster Defence Regiment, patrolling in the streets of County Down, patrolling out in the rural communities of County Down. Um, and um, without, you know, there was a lot of uh, risk in all of that. Um, the IRA in particular were targeting UDR patrols in those days and also off-duty UDR soldiers. And I lost a number of my comrades with whom I served in my company, B Company, in three UDR who were murdered by the IRA during the period of my service. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you highlighted the contribution by women as well, because lots have been said about contributions of women on the front line. Well, of course, that's already, it had already been done 
by the Greenfinches. And for many of reservists that do listen to this show, we will think, including myself, about the sometimes the con- the commitment of being a reservist, of going away at a weekend and two weeks, etc. Well, that's nothing compared to the sacrifice and service that you did um, in terms of that balance of time, work, life, and family as well. Um, you also mentioned uh, I, I actually lived in uh, not inside Long Cash, obviously in the maze, but I was I was there for a, a, a wee while uh, supporting um, during the the marching season. Um, as a young, uh, I was 19 by that stage, though, because I had my 19th birthday in Northern Ireland. Um, and of course, the um, the hunger strikes, as you mentioned, I remember driving past the uh, memorial to that in, in Twinbrook's estate. And that was always a bit of a, a tasty place to be as an 18-year-old um, driving past on top cover. But um, a, an absolute testament to your service. I'm so great to be able to tell the story of the EDR. It's really important. But you also mentioned your family. And it's funny, actually, because... Um, Lots of uh, our guests, we always have this hook about our family, about the motivations of making us join. Mine was my grandfather, yours, your father. Uh, and But you did, um, you've had tragedy in your family and, and well documented from another element of that contribution to the security and peace in Northern Ireland. I mean, if you're comfortable in doing so, can you, can you tell us a little bit about those um, who you lost uh, from your family and, um, you know, specifically about their impact and and about their service and and perhaps the impact this had on you growing up? Well, uh, at a very early age, um, in August 1970, the 12th of August 1970, what we call the Troubles in Northern Ireland um, came crashing into our local community and into the life of my wider family circle. My cousin was a young RUC constable, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the local police service in Northern Ireland. He was serving in a place called Cross Maglen in South Armagh, which will be very familiar to many of your um, uh, viewers who may have served in South Armagh. They will be familiar with Cross Maglen. Um, and Samuel was um, stationed in Cross Maglen Police Station, August 1970. Um, so right at the beginning of the Troubles, the provisional IRA had only recently been formed out of a split in the Irish Republican Army. And uh, Samuel and his uh, colleague, Constable Roy Miller, were called out to inspect a stolen vehicle that had been abandoned on a road um, uh, not far from Cross Maglen. And they went out to um, uh, inspect the vehicle Um and uh, Samuel uh, opened the driver's door. And as he did so, the courtesy light inside the vehicle uh, switched on. And, and and the switching on of the light triggered um, a, a booby trap bomb that was concealed in the vehicle and the, and, and the car exploded. Um, Samuel was, was gravely injured, as was his colleague Roy Miller. And they both died as a result of their injuries. Um, in that bomb explosion. And in fact, Samuel and Roy Miller, Samuel Donaldson, Constable Samuel Donaldson and Constable Roy Miller were the first RUC officers to be murdered by the provisional IRA in what became known as the Troubles. Um, And even though I was a young child at the time, I do remember vividly the impact that his death had on our local community, but especially on our wider family circle. And I think that was one of the things that inspired my father to join the Ulster Defence Regiment um, to do his bit, play his part in protecting communities. 
Uh, and then a number of years later, in February 1985, Samuel's brother, Chief Inspector um, uh, Alex Donaldson, was murdered in a mortar attack on Newry Police Station. Again, Newry will be a town very familiar to those who served in Northern Ireland. So there was a, a mortar attack on Newry Police Station, and there were nine um, RUC officers killed in that attack. And Chief Inspector Alex Donaldson was one of them. And he was the brother of Constable Samuel Donaldson, both cousins of mine. Um, so um, that occurred after I had joined the Ulster Defence Regiment, the second murder of Alex. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, I've we've seen that impact. I've seen the impact on my the community I grew up in. Um, some of my friends were killed um, serving with the Ulster Defence Regiment and then members of the wider family circle who were killed serving with the Royal Ulster Constabulary. I wanted to ask you about that just to, first of all, to understand what, you know, what has motivated you into service. Um, and it's really generous of you to share that story because it, you know, it must be still difficult all these years later to think about your family and those murders. But also, I'm really grateful that you shared their names because it's important we remember them, um, these people that, that fell before in, in their duty, in, in, the, in the quest for peace. So I think it's really important that podcasts like this, when we're talking about these issues and we're able to recall those names of those people and we can document this and get their names all these years later so we can remember them. So thank you for sharing that story. It's, it's really, really generous of you to do so. Um, and I'm, I should imagine a lot of that motivated you to go and stand and serve in public life, in, in politics. And, of course, you've got an extensive experience, um, not only in Westminster, but in Stormont too, um, in Northern Ireland. Uh, but you also work behind the scenes of politics, just like me, as an agent. Uh, and it's really important that we champion and, and uh, hold aloft to the people behind the scenes of politics who get stuff done, who run the elections. And you were an election agent, probably for one of the most infamous, controversial figures, perhaps, in politics. And that was Enoch Powell, MP. Um, Enoch Powell, of course, was a successful, was a hugely um, successful soldier rising through the ranks. I think of one of only two soldiers in World War II who went from rank of um, private soldier to brigadier and had a distinctive war record and was a talented linguist, too. Um, but well known for a controversial moment, of course. But I mean, what was he actually like? What was the man? You were so close to him, working with him. What was he like working? What was he really like? Well, Enoch Paul was my local member of parliament. Um, when he had resigned from the Conservative Party over the decision to um, join the what was then the European Economic Community, the EEC, um, he resigned from the Conservative Party because he felt very strongly that Edward Heath had taken the party in, and the country in the wrong direction. Um, and eventually he, um, so the, at the first election in 1974, he didn't stand as a candidate. But then he was invited by um, Ulster Unionists in Northern Ireland to come and stand in the, the second general election in 1974 in the constituency of South Down. Um, and he won the seat. And uh, fast forward to the early 1980s, and um, 
not only did I become uh, involved as a part-time soldier in the Ulster Defence Regiment, but I also joined the Ulster Unionist Party, and he was my local MP. Um, and after a while, um, I was appointed by the constituency association to be his agent, uh, and we fought the 1983 general election um, and were successful in holding the seat, despite the fact that the, the boundaries had changed substantially. Uh, and there was a far greater nationalist population in South Down as a result of the boundary changes. But we won the election in 1983. He was a fascinating man to work for. Of course, you know, there is all the controversy around his views on certain issues. Um, but I always found him to be um, generous, humorous, a great sense of humor, um, uh, quite intense at times, but um, you know, a powerful orator. The number of times that I sat and listened to speeches made by Enoch Powell at various constituency events, uh, and he he was such an intelligent man. He had a huge grasp and knowledge of world affairs, and very often, even in the middle of our troubled situation in Northern Ireland, he would give speeches on everything from you know his views on nuclear disarmament to the role of America in world affairs. And, and you know, it was almost like an, a political apprenticeship for me. I learned a lot under um, uh, his tutelage working uh, with him. I didn't always share his views on things. Um, I'm sure he didn't always share my view of things. But um, as a parliamentarian, I learned a lot from working at constituency level with him. He worked very hard as a constituency MP as well as being the consummate parliamentarian. He loved Parliament. He loved the way that Parliament operated. He was a, very much a traditionalist in parliamentary terms. He believed in sticking to the old traditions in Parliament. I'm not sure what he would, what he would make of the modern-day House of Commons, but um, certainly it was a fascinating experience working for someone like Enoch Powell. Oh, it must have been. And, of course, he was buried, I believe, in a full brigadier's uniform um, of his regiment which I believe was the Staffordshire Regiment, his first regiment. No, he did. Warwickshire, the Warwickshire Regiment. Yeah. And in fact, he was buried in the cemetery at Warwick. And I had the honour of attending his funeral, first of all, in St. Margaret's Church, the funeral service, uh, which, of course, is the, if you like, the, the parliamentary church, um, sitting alongside and, and sitting in the shadow of Westminster Abbey. And then we went to Warwick, where there was a further service, and he was buried at Warwick uh, in the uniform of a brigadier of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Now, he also serves in the Intelligence Corps, of course. So He did. Uh, my corps. Uh, but no, wow, crikey, that's, that's amazing. He, you know, he was very proud of his military service. He, um, I think that it, it, it had a very significant impact on, in shaping his life, um, as well as being intensely you know, political and um, and, and as I've said, the consummate parliamentarian, he had a discipline to his life that he was born out of his military service. He took a keen interest in military affairs and in military history, um, but was hugely proud of his military heritage and, and his time with the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. And then, as you say, with the Intelligence Corps, and uh, he was able to use his um, tremendous linguistic skills and his huge intelligence um, to um, really make a big difference in World War II in terms of his contribution 
particularly in Southeast Asia and, and other parts of the world where he was deployed as an intelligence officer. He, he made a very major contribution um, to the military effort during World War II. And I think that's often overlooked when people consider the life of Enoch Powell. It saddens me that, you know, at times he is known for one particular speech or for comments that he made. And, and whether you agree or disagree with those comments, there was so much more to his life um, uh, than, than, than just those remarks. And I think, you know, his military um, uh, uh, service is often overlooked, but it had a massive influence and impact on Enoch Powell, the politician. Yeah, I think there are many faces to individuals. And in order for us to actually form our own opinion, it's important that we present all of them. Um, but often is the case, you only really see one. And certainly that can probably be the case of Enoch Powell. Um, thank you for sharing that insight. That's fascinating. Um, I've been mean to ask you. I, I could not talk to you without asking you about Enoch Powell, that's for sure. Um, and of course, you mentioned those big political moments as well. And you've had your own uh, throughout your career. Um, probably as mentioned uh, earlier on the good friday agreement i was on patrol in west belfast that day it was signed as a young 18 year old um i i was aware as a young 18 infanteer that the the huge moment that we were living through at that time the political implications of my actions potentially that day um on patrol in in the community um and indeed you were around the negotiating table for a lot of that time um i mean what was that like ne negotiating um, for the Good Friday Agreement, big, tense political moments that have been well documented in history. And have your views changed over the years on, on that process? Well, I mean, whatever one's view on the Good Friday Agreement, and I certainly felt that there were elements of the agreement that were flawed um, and, uh, you know, that we could have done better. But it was certainly a very historic moment. There's no doubt about that. And when you look back, over the history of the last 25 years almost now since that agreement was signed um, with all its um, uh, flaws and its imperfections. There's no doubt that um, we did turn a corner in terms of the history of Northern Ireland, in terms of the peace process as it's known. Um, and, you know, I still have major concerns about key elements of the agreement the concessions that were made, for example, to the various uh, paramilitary or terrorist groupings um, were very difficult. And I think one of the feelings of the agreement was um, its its um, inability to tackle um, the, the issues around um, support for victims, how we would deal with what had happened in the past, you know, issues um, about justice, about truth. And we're still struggling with that, Johnny. Um, 25 years later, we are still struggling in Northern Ireland to find a way to deal with those 30 years of violence and the, the devastation that was wrought on Northern Ireland as a result of that violence and the lives that were impacted, lives that were destroyed in many cases, lives that were changed and not for the good. Um, so, you know, whilst there is no doubt that that period was a turning point for Northern Ireland, we're still struggling to deal with the legacy of our troubled past, those dark years that cast their shadow, not just over our past, but to a degree continue to cast their shadow over our future. And until we can find a way of dealing with those issues, I think um, the potential of that future is being held back. So uh, you're right. These were moments of history. They were, they were hugely important decisions. For me, it was difficult. I won't 
deny that. I remember the first day that Sinn Féin entered the talks. I'd never met Sherry Adams before. I'd never met Mark McGuinness before. And yet here I was sitting across a table from Jerry Adams and Mark McGuinness, two men reputedly leaders of the provisional IRA, men and an organization that were responsible for, for a lot of killings, including, as I've explained, um, members of my family circle, comrades with whom I'd served. So, uh, you know, that was a difficult moment, sitting across the table from people that I regarded in, you know, essentially as my enemies, as the people who'd caused a lot of destruction, a lot of heartache, a lot of, you know, human tragedy in those 30 years in Northern Ireland. And yet I believed that we had to find a way forward that would bring an end to the violence and 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 underpin democracy in Northern Ireland, underpin the rule of law. Now we've come a long way since then. We are still dealing with many challenges. There are many difficulties in Northern Ireland, but I fought hard in the years that followed the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement to hold um, Sinn Féin in particular, to hold their feet to the fire, that they would have to step up to the mark, accept and respect democracy and the rule of law in Northern Ireland and turn their back on violence um, and, 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 and on that troubled past. That's an ongoing journey, um, Johnny. You know, we, we've still a long way to go in in cementing peace and stability in Northern Ireland. We have our difficulties at the moment um, created uh, by the Northern Ireland Protocol that is part of the post-Brexit process that's added to political instability and economic instability in Northern Ireland. So um, we're still encountering what I call big bumps on the road uh, on the path to peace. And soon we'll be hitting that milestone, as you've alluded to there, of being living in peace longer than we lived in the traditional conflict of that period known as the Troubles. And I guess that, that might offer us an opportunity as we hit those moments, another political moment, another historical moment. Um, and I can't say that I've met Jerry Adams, but I was certainly within about 100 feet of him during the marching season when he tipped up to the low Omar Road to um, break the peace or whatever he was doing that day. Um, I was hiding around the corner, but um, I was certainly within it and very close to that, that individual. Um, and I guess um, just how difficult it would have been for you you know, talking to people that, as you know, that close connection to your family, the only real empathy I can have with that is having arrested Taliban who were shooting at us um, on a particular day and having to be that close as a, an arresting soldier and then, you know, having to deal with them humanely as we uh, proudly did. So I've, that's as close as I can get to that feeling that you must have experienced during that time. Um, and of course, you mentioned the, um, the protocol and and we're, we're going to shift on to the future of unionism, if I may, for a second. Because I think for all of us across the UK, particularly in, the, in mainland Britain, unionism all of a sudden is being better understood. We've seen the, you know, the rise of nationalism in places like Scotland and Wales um, and in Northern Ireland in, to an extent. And I think for, our, for the English population who don't have devolved government, who perhaps don't value unionism as much, as other elements of the UK, all of a sudden it's become quite prominent and Brexit has forced the issue. I mean, what hope for the union? Are, are you positive about the union going forward, um, even though of these existential threats happening from the political moments? I mean, what's your view on that as we look ahead? Well, first of all, Johnny, I, it would be remiss of me if I didn't say to you, um, 
and to all those who served in Northern Ireland during what we call the Troubles, uh, that we really appreciate the enormous sacrifice that young men and women made in coming to serve in Northern Ireland. For many of them, it was a strange place. Um, and, uh, you know, many, many young men and women who came to serve in Northern Ireland, sadly, you know, did not return to their families. They lost their lives. They, um, they paid a huge price. And, and the army and the other armed forces of the United Kingdom made a massive contribution um, to holding the line during what were enormously difficult years in Northern Ireland. And, and, and it, it is firmly my view that without that contribution, we wouldn't be where we are today. I believe that we hadn't had young men like you who came onto the streets of Belfast and other cities, towns and villages in Northern Ireland who served and protected the community. If it hadn't been for the contribution made um, by um, our armed forces from England, Scotland, Wales, um, then Northern Ireland wouldn't be in the place that it's in today. And I think, you know, I'm very proud of my military service. I'm very proud of those with whom I served in the Ulster Defence Regiment. But I also pay tribute to all the men and women from other parts of the United Kingdom for whom this isn't home. I mean, bear in mind, I was out there protecting my home, my family, my community. But you were in Northern Ireland, Johnny, you know, coming to a place that wasn't your home. It may have been part of the United Kingdom, the nation to which we both belong. But, you know, I have so much admiration for those who came, who served, and sadly for many, who sacrificed for peace in Northern Ireland. Um, so the Union, I think, today, in some senses, um, uh, the threat to the Union coming from terrorism has receded. And yet, in political terms, I think there is a greater threat to the Union now from a resurgent nationalism in Scotland. And that has its impact here in Northern Ireland. Ironically, support for the Union in Northern Ireland is stronger than it is in Scotland. Um, successive um, opinion polls in Northern Ireland repeatedly show that support for a united Ireland, i.e. Northern Ireland leaving the United Kingdom, is, is only around 30-35%. So we're still, I think, in a strong position in Northern Ireland that support for the Union across the community. And that, you know, let's bear in mind that you know, if you've got somewhere in the region of 60% plus support for the union, that's not just coming from what is traditionally regarded as Protestant and unionist voters, but it's coming from many, uh, from uh, a Roman Catholic background and from other backgrounds in Northern Ireland who regard the union as being the best solution for Northern Ireland. Um, and so I think support for the union is holding strong. But as you've said, the protocol presents a real challenge for us because it is driving a wedge between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, an economic wedge. And the union is not just a political union. It's worth bearing that in mind. It is also an economic union. And the um, Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland has recently ruled that the protocol breaches Article 6 of the Act of Union, which allows for free trade within the United Kingdom itself. So I think there is now a duty on the, on the government and on the Prime Minister to address this problem. Um, the Prime Minister says he believes in the Union and Northern Ireland's place within the Union. And I think, therefore, we need to see the government introducing legislation to repair the damage that has been done to the Act of Union so that, once again, Northern Ireland citizens, British citizens living in Northern Ireland are able to 
trade freely within their own country. That's a fundamental right that at the moment is not enjoyed to the fullest extent by British citizens living in Northern Ireland. Well, well, thank you for that tribute to my colleagues that did, as they say, walk the walk. Um, and you have left an indelible mark upon my heart um, and my memories. I'm very proud of my service in Northern Ireland. And uh, I think as long as we've got um, uh, your voice in politics, the, the union will, will be reminded, certainly in Westminster, of the need to uh, keep things alive and to keep the union strong. And it's really interesting to hear that polling as well, because that gives us hope for the future of uh, peace in Northern Ireland. Um, so, Geoffrey, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for chatting. It's been absolutely fascinating and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you, Johnny. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, um, and again, thank you and to all of your viewers to, who served in Northern Ireland. You know, your sacrifice, your service will never be forgotten. Uh, the union is where it is today. Northern Ireland is in a more peaceful place today because of that service and that sacrifice. And we say from the bottom of our hearts, an enormous thank you to all of you. Hello, it's Johnny here. But guess what? It could be you right here on this part of the podcast. Whether you've got an organisation or a business or an individual that needs supporting, we are reserving this spot for members of our Parliamentary Business Club as a direct benefit of joining our club and supporting campaign force, or indeed sponsors of the podcast too. So this is something that interests you, then get in touch at johnny at campaignforce.co.uk. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.